welcome to the L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day of JDA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast is sponsored by Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. Visit thinklearning.com to find out more. Hello and welcome. My name is Nick Day from James Gray Associates, Specialist Payroll and HR Recruiters. And today I am joined on the L&D podcast sponsored by Think Learning by Hesketh Emden, a multi-award winning talent management professional and ex-head of talent management for the NHS. Hesketh has a wealth of practical experience in a variety of sectors and has had an impact on many businesses with his skills in learning and development, design and strategy implementation. He has headed up and set up a broad range of public and private sector L&D functions, from commercial union during one of Europe's largest mergers to the Metropolitan Police. In 2011, he was recruited by NHS London as head of talent management, where he was tasked with identifying future leaders across London's 70 NHS organisations. As part of government health service reforms in 2013, he was brought in to help create NHS Property Services, a limited company owned by the Secretary of State, into which 3,200 staff were tupied overnight. His role was to put in place the talent management structure to support building a new organisation with a single culture where there had previously been 161 ways of doing things. We will learn more about that project in particular a little bit later in the podcast. For the last two years, Hesketh has been working as a freelancer and has continued to promote and train the power of conversations via his own business, Pro Insight, which aims to help individuals and businesses with strategic and operational improvements. So there's so much to talk about to Hesketh today. Let's not delay any further and launch right in. Welcome, Hesketh. How are you? Oh, fine. My head is um, spinning from what sounds like I'm, I'm starring on that this is your life. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, you've got an awful lot of credentials there, Hesketh, for me to run through. And I would like to dive straight in, Hesketh, and just let the listeners know a little bit more about the work you have been doing around the power of conversations. I know it's something you're very passionate about. So, L&D Podcast Discovery, questions to set the scene. Can you share with us where this work first started and perhaps how it's evolved? Yeah, I mean, looking back probably around 20 years, um, shock horror, um, it goes back to some incidental work where I was doing some national research on what makes effective appraisal or performance management conversations. And part of the data um, I analyzed indicated that perhaps unsurprisingly, where um, you had good appraisal or performance management conversations, the outcomes were better. There was greater productivity, engagement, all the usual things compared with where it was bad. And we had some definitions for good and bad. What I found particularly interesting was where organizations didn't have any appraisal or performance management processes the figures were better on engagement and all the factors we were measuring um, than where it was done badly. Consequently, it's rather empowering to say to an organization, look, if you're doing it poorly, don't bother doing it at all. Interesting. And that gets people to sit up and, and, and think. So indirectly, that was the start of recognizing there's something important about how you do appraisal. So then later on, when I was at um, NHS London, looking after some sort of 70 organizations in London, there, when I was putting in place talent management, part of the evaluation showed that 
you got better outcomes from the conversations, which included performance and potential discussions and things. But the outcomes, according to both the staff and the managers, were better where we had trained managers in holding these conversations. So that really started to say to me, it does matter. And I think in the introduction, you mentioned confidence and competence, but that's a very good way of getting information, perhaps more honestly than usual, if you ask somebody how confident they feel doing something. Because if you say to me, Hesketh, how confident are you doing podcasts? I'll say, well, I'm always a bit nervous about it and, um, you know, I, I, I hold my breath. But if mm. you said, are you competent? I'd probably be saying, yes, of course, I've done a few of these, no problem. I see. And if you're going to spend time and effort um, developing people or doing anything in the organization, having a true understanding of, of the needs is important. And consequently, I suggest to people, ask if people are confident doing whatever it is that you want them to do. And you're likely, I think, to get a better answer or a more truthful answer. Fantastic. And a really good piece of advice to take away immediately from the podcast if someone has um, you know, someone needs to address this straight away. It's a good way to start the conversation. To date, then, what have you found have been the biggest drivers for businesses requesting this type of training or intervention? How do they go about it? Or how do you establish that perhaps this is where you need to start? Um, organizations usually come at it from a, um, a, a couple of angles. One is on the appraisal talent management side from the point of view that it's not going very well, people don't like it, it doesn't add value, people hate it, they can't do it. And I don't sure. think anybody's going to be surprised about that. So it might be directly something to tackle those conversations. But equally, it can be around a broader organizational development piece, a culture change, implementing new technology, um, mergers, where what you're wanting to do is make sure that people get on, there's greater alignment, better understanding of what's required from them. And consequently, I found that um, better conversations, and for the sake of the podcast, conversation training, really is something very fundamental and can almost be the, 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 the precursor to success for any change it really is a foundation piece and the challenge with that is it's so blooming simple you talk to people they go what we have conversations all the time of course we know what we're doing there's no problem so in its simplicity is half the problem obviously you met some of the things you mentioned there you're talking about you know new technology mergers whatever it might be they're all challenges that are going to involve people that are going to be quite resistant to change is is there any sort of magic bullet or magic kind of uh, process that you could follow to i guess align people who are resistant to those changes i think this is where the lnd function needs to sit within the whole business so i don't think success is down to any particular function alone I think it's about being joined up. So there's the broader communication piece. If you're lucky enough to have a comms uh, department where there's regular discussion about what's happening, where the business is going, what it needs to do, what the business will be doing to support people. So you know what's coming. Something around um, letting people know success stories, be it 
to do with training and development or anything else to do with the change. So people are regularly seeing that there are benefits and right down to supporting staff and managers sitting down and having discussions, be it about um, talking about the team and where the team's going and being able to tackle the issues that way, but equally staff being able to talk to managers the other way around. And that's something that we, we, we started to do early on from originally when it was just appraisal considering training managers to hold conversations with staff. We thought the benefits were, were, were looking so interesting. We wanted to ensure that staff were able to have conversations with their managers. Sure. And that's where it really broadened out finally to it's just so underpinning for everything that's going on. So, I mean, the idea or the concept of a power of a conversation is, is you know, years old. It should be something that we do every day, right? But I think technology gets in the way and sometimes people will make blanket announcements via email, for example. Because we've got technology at our fingertips now, what, what are the biggest challenges that you have in making the power of conversations, if you like, that type of training mainstream within businesses? I, I think it's very much fitting into the culture of the particular organization. So right down to um, how you refer to it. So in a harder organization, maybe talking about conversations is a bit too wishy-washy. If the business is wanting to focus on customer service, maybe you refer to exactly the same sort of things that I'm talking about, but in terms of um, fabulous customer service. There are ways of making it fit in and feel right. I mean, one one of the big projects with property services, uh, we we initially called the appraisal approach my conversations because it was very much around me as a staff member taking charge of having an effective appraisal. Sure. But that, despite all the hard work and the 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 um, general communication about this, people were still saying. Where's the appraisal and so on? So it just shows we put in a lot of effort and even then getting it to, to be fully understood was quite hard. Technology is a fab enabler and it's really useful to, well, we've got podcasts, to have LinkedIn groups, to have loads of communication like that. But things are changing and we have to embrace those changes whilst not forgetting how appropriate some of the more traditional routes can be. I agree. And I think um, technology, you know, as a result, can make us inherently lazy sometimes. And um, I'm all for bringing back the, uh, the power of the conversation because I think it's, it can become a bit of a dying art if we, if we rely on technology too much. Uh, obviously, for yourself, it's being something that you've been delivering and something you're very passionate about. I know that you've actually completed your own comprehensive evaluation of the training you've been delivering. So can you share with the listeners what you did in that evaluation and perhaps give us some examples of the positive impacts that the training has had? Yes. I mean, over, over the years, different aspects of of this evaluation is really useful because of course you can go back to people um, within the organization particularly the board and say you, you know you're hitting the spot in these particular ways but one of the things um, very early on in London was the 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 better outcomes from talent management where there were these conversations and what I wanted to do was use the talent management processes I put into place 
to help get people onto leadership development programs. Now, leadership development programs are always very expensive. Um, well, not always, but, but usually. Sure. Um, and we wanted to make sure the right people were getting on them. And when I did an evaluation of those people who had been identified as talent through our London process, which was a process we may go into um, later, but if you've been through that process compared with if your organization had said, yeah, Heska's a talented person, we want him to be put forward, when all those people either identified through the talent management process or anecdotally by their senior management, when the outcomes from the selection interviews were compared, we found that you were 35% more likely to be successful as being identified as talent at that interview stage if you had been through the process rather than being identified through any other route. So that very much gave us um, the impetus to develop the talent management process further. But specifically on conversations, um, at property services, we put more than 500 people through uh, the training at all levels and at all levels I mean the most senior managers through to um, entry level operatives people who may be cleaners and caterers and line managers of, of, of teams and because of the numbers we were able to analyze what was going on right and what we found oh and I must just say that the conversation training that we did was not just to do with appraisal. There was no context behind the training because we were so convinced that improving people's interactions and conversations, whatever the topic, would show business benefits. Sure. So um, when we looked at the results, we found um, a, a couple of key topics. Um, people were spending time to understand each other's perspectives. Um, they'd been using the, the learning they'd had in important negotiations. They were applying the techniques and they were getting better, more satisfactory outcomes. And people were able to achieve more. They were some of the critical things we looked at. And we were gobsmacked because there were things like, well, if we just take um, achieving more, the most senior people, uh, we had 40% of the senior cohorts saying they were achieving more, and that rose to 68% for some populations. And other figures were like that. So using the techniques and important negotiations, we found on the whole 78% of staff were using um, them in negotiations. And when that translated, into um, productivity, because I was very interested in, in whether this would impact productivity. We compared our results with published um, research. Um, a couple of people, Boyet and Boyet, who look at internal comms, and they suggest from their research that if you improve internal communications, you can improve productivity between 20 and 50%. So we liked that, but what we did we looked at our figures and then took a bit of an easy route by saying, 
if by it by it say 20 to 50 percent improvements in productivity we will look at figures of between one and 20 percent so you couldn't really argue um if boy it boy it was saying 20 sure. to 50 percent we we did some figures and we also took the lower figure of on the whole 40 to 68 percent was saying they were achieving more so we just took the 40 percent figure because that was the lowest of the lot and with a little bit of calculations we were able to show that even if we had a one percent improvement in productivity compared with the 20 to 50 boy, boy we're talking about that gave us 280k savings and if we took the 20 percent which was their lowest figure it would give us something like five and a half million productivity savings. Wow. So if you think about those figures compared with the cost of undertaking, even just developing and put, you know, putting the, the, the training together ourselves and then running it out and having accommodations for some people, you know, the whole cost, that is peanuts in comparison to the potential benefits, which, as I say, were very conservative. Absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, now, just to bring this, might as well bring this forward now, really, but to put this into context, in 2011, you were recruited to, uh, as head of talent management, to identify future leaders across London's 70 NHS organisations. Um, and in 2013, as part of the Lansley NHS reforms, you were tasked with a new project to develop a new talent management structure, which would support the building of the new organization, which I believe was NHS property services. And as, as we mentioned, I think in the introduction, yeah. there's three and a half thousand staff across 161 organizations. So it must have been incredibly challenging, especially in terms of developing a single culture, if you like, where there presumably been 161 ways of doing things before. So what kind of to, to achieve these savings, to achieve these productivity gains, what tools and processes did you develop to to achieve your targets and how did you manage the, the change and and you know what were the I mean obviously you've got some of the productivity outcomes and what were some of the learning outcomes from the project? Um to start with definitely we had 161 organizations overnight. The staff suddenly became ours and I'd arrived and I'd got a desk and a and a PC <laughs> and that was it. So in a way, it's it's huge and it's fantastic having that kind of blank canvas. Um, but it does mean you, ne you, ne you need to get down and understand the variety of things that you need to do. And I think the, the first thing was the the strategy. And my strategies tend to be rather circular, that, that everything links to everything else. So, for example, um we were having the, the, the staff and managers stupid across. People were going into new teams. People didn't know each other. So how do you get people to be able to sit down, discuss, understand the changes that are happening and what it means? Um, how do you set performance objectives? How do you deal with um, customers? How do you deal with clients that aren't paying you because the business was around? Um, one of the, one of the things about providing facilities management services, but also about being paid for those services. So how do you ensure you're paid when money's overdue? That sort of thing. So everything in terms of underpinning what we were doing was down to good communication. So that was one of the underpinning pieces but at the same time 
the research with the board and senior managers, they talked about, we need to be more commercial. Because unusually, we were a limited company. There were VAT implications. We weren't traditionally, in that sense, NHS. Sure. Consequently, people needed to do things differently. But what did that mean? What did being more commercial mean? Well, being more commercial um, meant dealing with customers directly. It was customer service. There were also management development issues. Um, staff hadn't always been invested in from their previous organizations. So it was bringing people up to scratch, financial skills, management skills. Underpinning that was the need to help people with coaching and mentoring, because that would help not only in the conversations, but in terms of ongoing development for people. And then how are you going to keep track of all this? How are you going to manage the process? Would a learning management system be useful? Yes. What about e-learning and stuff, giving people access to wider development than perhaps they'd had access to in the past? Then what are the implications? We've got distributed staff. We've got staff that didn't necessarily, if they were um, um, support engineers going around different sites during the day or cleaners doing three health centers in an evening, where were they going to do e-learning? Could they have um, access via mobiles? Then if that was the case and there wasn't time during the day, how do you tackle access or recognizing that um, somebody may be doing e-learning on a Sunday morning with a coffee. It might be their personal choice. You want the line manager to be able to recognize that and say, well, okay, fantastic. Um, work is looking a bit more straightforward this week. Uh, why don't you knock off early on Friday? Having the confidence to do that. So everything kind of links into everything else. And you're trying to support the general change in direction with all these bits and pieces. So conversation training helps underpin all that. But there are all these other links to and activities that enable you eventually to look back and go, wow, we've moved from X to Y. Sure, sure. I mean, just, just listening to it, there's a whole podcast in itself and just in, in, in terms of the stages you laid out there and, and what you delivered. Interestingly, just listening to you, it shows as well just – what a steep learning curve there must have been for yourself just to understand all the different organizational business cultures and processes before you could even consider sort of looking at the learning outcomes. Uh, it must have been quite a challenge for you to get to grips with with how all the different processes that, that, were, un, that, that were being undertaken. Yeah, I, th I think what you have to do is um, spend time getting to understand what the issues are, get out and about. The starting point, or one of the starting points, is really is the business plan. And I'm rather shocked by research. I think the CIPD have published things and other people towards maturity, I think, around how many L&D functions and wider HR departments don't actually refer their strategies to the business plan, which to me is completely bonkers because if you haven't got that as a context, why are you doing anything at sure. all? So it's about what was the business plan wanting to deliver? Talking to the board, what are the directors wanting to um, tackle? What are the challenges? So not immediately going in with, I want to do training and development. What do you want? It's around 
what can't you do? What's the business having problems doing? And um, from that, then developing um, potential options for solutions. And you get the opportunity to link everything with everything else. So there isn't one item of development or OD that exists in isolation. It's all part of moving the organization in the direction in that sense. If you do think about it, it makes the evaluation so much more straightforward because if there isn't something that needs to be done, you don't need to be doing it. And if you've identified what needs to be done, you can evaluate it and see sure, what happens. Sure, I'm, I'm quite a, a visual learner, so I'll have an image right now of a bit like a, a police investigation board. We've got the business plan in the middle of a huge whiteboard and all these sort of prongs coming out of it with all the different learning outcomes all sort of linking together. It's a... Uh, it creates for me quite a quite a, a mental image of all the different things that come together. You can see then as a, as an image of how everything can link quite clearly all towards that one business plan. Yeah, and in fact, it, it, it's funny. There was um, one very um, simple piece, um, but was consistent, and that was when we um, merged the organisations. There were a few staff who were still weekly paid, whereas um, the majority of the, the, the staff were monthly paid, as is the case with the majority of the NHS. And what we wanted to do was move people onto monthly pay. So as part of that and recognising um, that, that we had feedback from the unions, which was, was kind of very sensible, it was there is a big difference in terms of how you live your life um, if you're paid weekly compared with monthly. And we wanted to ensure that staff were supported through that transition. So as well as the usual ability to um, have um, like salary loans and things just for a short time or sure. know, like an extra two weeks money to help you help you through that, that side of things, we um, spoke with ACAS. The result was with one of our union partners, we were able to put in place um, some training and development on budgeting. Now, this is something that um, they ran through Citizens Advice, and Citizens Advice provided the training for us. And we were able to put that in place in order to support um, those challenges. Then one of the union people said to me, um, so this is direct sure. feedback. We have um, a lot of our um, members are traditional households where very often the husband goes out to work and comes home and gives um, the money into the household, which is very often the, 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 the wife. Now we, are concerned, the union was saying, we're concerned that um, the budgeting person is often not the employee. And it can be the other way around too, of course. But they were concerned that if we were going to be offering training to the employee, it might be useful to include the partner because they might actually be the person that does the budgeting. So I immediately said yes. And I was looked at a bit confusedly. And I said, why? And they said, well, you've said yes. And I said, well, why wouldn't I? Because if what we're talking about is wanting to make the transition successful, 
um, why would I not want to do what you suggest sure. would be helpful? And that really was, you know, very good. And I was, I was lucky in that, in that sense, it all sort of moved ahead. Okay. Um, but that in itself was just one tiny piece of ensuring that these changes um, were embedded. And again, you're always linking it back to to that initial business plan, which you mentioned is so important. So if we if we use that as sort of advice piece number one, are there any other immediate practical steps that learning and development people that are, are listening to this right now could implement? Uh, we're going to do a quick break from our sponsors, Think Learning, and then we'll come straight back. It'd be great to hear what advice you could give to our HR L&D podcast listeners. Engage, learn, perform with Think Learning, specialists in learning and performance technologies. We're experts in solving the challenges of targeting, tracking, training in regulated environments. We have developed the Totara platform to provide a cost-effective, organisation-wide talent solution that can help you to provide a safer and better place to work. Customizable workflows promotes engagement through onboarding and induction, whilst an intuitive user interface helps drive ongoing engagement with learning. Bespoke workflows for performance appraisal and integration to payroll and recruitment systems transform Totara into a powerful and holistic talent platform. You'll find us to be responsive, collaborative and solution focused. Visit thinklearning.com for more information. So Heskett, tell us, what can listeners do that they can take away and immediately implement to successfully develop positive communication? Um, and, and what would they be? Where can they have a positive impact on all aspects of people's lives? So what practical steps would you or advice would you give to someone who is embarking on, I guess, an L&D change or, or a, 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 a talent management change that you could immediately implement from listening to this podcast? I think as well as the sound research is the analysis. And I know organizations, there's lots of challenges to get on and start doing stuff. But if you can spend some quality time trying to understand the big picture and linking the things together, that initial time and effort will um, pay dividends because it will start to, your solutions will start to um, fall out. Working as well as uh, I think I mentioned earlier with any internal communications, making sure that people know what it is that you're doing and particularly those success stories because people like to see, oh, um, Bob in accounts um, went on some, some development and it led to an improvement in something or other or right down to um, indirect things, it, it, it's tackling the new account system and and something enabled an improvement in the account system team because they were tackling non-payment and that improved their productivity and consequently the chief exec was very happy and sure. they get some praise. So it's stories about the benefits of what you've been doing are really helpful. But the best thing is getting out and about you need to um find out what's going on and make sure that um, um things are tightly aligned i remember with one client um a few years ago going out um 
to different locations. And at the end of my fact finding, just about to wind up, and the people in the room around the table looked at each other and uh, sort of smiled and something was going on that I wasn't aware of properly. And I said, okay, I said, what is it? You're not <laughs> telling me something. <laughs> and they laughed and they said, we weren't sure what we've been doing. We were worried that you would come and stop us doing it. Wow. And I said, no, no, no. You know, by now, that's why they was looking around the table at each other. They felt confident in telling me. And they had got their own local induction system for um, staff. And it was so good. I said, this is brilliant. Why don't we, you work with me and my team, and we'll take this as the model for what we can do around the rest of the business. And they were thrilled to bits. But why reinvent the wheel? And they were thrilled to bits because they sure. had some recognition. But... It was genuine because fantastic. That enables me then to go off and do something else that needs to be done. That doesn't. Yeah, no, a great example, and it's, I guess it encourages those perhaps sometimes resistance training because they're worried it will take time out of their day, uh, or perhaps people don't feel like they need it. Yeah. <laughs> It'll help you with those battles if you've got a really good success story. Actually, that that's reminded me, um, Nick. I'm really pleased. Something um, that I think is very important, and that is not doing learning and development or training and development to the business. Um, and by that, I really mean is coming up with solutions to problems. So it goes back to you know the business plan, what you're doing and so on. But I don't think I've ever heard um, a manager say to me, I really want a fabulous appraisal system. It's what I'm calling out for. What you will hear is I need to ensure that, 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 um, my team are delivering, that they're responsive, um, they get the recognition they deserve and so on. And what you should be doing is coming up with solutions for that. They may be what we in the function would call um, appraisal, or they might be um, a process of some sort, but it's around solving their problem. And that's how you get the buy-in for what you can do, because you're solving problems. In the same way, nobody said to me, I want a really fabulous nine book <laughs> talent management. <laughs> now, it's all about the learning outcomes, isn't it? It's about what you get at the end of it. Now, before we go into um, finding a little bit more about you, which I'm really keen to do as well, we've got some quick questions we're going to run through. I know that you've been working with a substance misuse charity. So can you share with the listeners um, a little bit of information about the type of work you've been doing in relation to the charity? I understand there's some interesting work regarding something called the Lazarus drug. So I'd be really keen to find out more. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. The, the, the charity, there too, it's the Substance Misuse um, Management um, Good Practice and the Federation of Drug and Alcohol Practitioners. And they are, within one charity, an organization that is there to support drug and alcohol practitioners. That is people working directly with those with um, addictions or in recovery from addictions. So it's around continuous professional development, sure. really. And we provide a variety of training and development from um, hosting joint conferences through to e-learning and bits and pieces. And there is one particular uh, piece of e-learning. We call it free learn because it's freely available for everybody. And it's around a drug called naloxone. And that naloxone is something which is critical in situations where people have overdosed 
and this drug will actually bring people back from the brink who might otherwise can be considered um, wow. to to have uh, uh, have died and that is fantastic but what we have done is to enable people to use the, the the drug to understand when you use it how to use it safely we have put together this this e-learning it's about an hour's worth what this does is it enables people to um be saved effectively because people are competent now the people that have gone through this training have included mums dads friends addicts themselves because people are often um recommended if they are taking drugs to do so in pairs so there's somebody to support uh you if there are problems now that's separate from the whole social issue about whether this is or isn't promoting the use of, of of drugs what we're about is ensuring that people are safe and able to use this um naloxone as and when necessary and to be frank being involved with an organization which ultimately um can produce things which saves lives is absolutely fantastic um and i think that is the ultimate kind of outcome yeah, absolutely i mean that. i think it's fantastic work and it's great that you're able to you know and uh, i guess give your your learning and development expertise you mentioned you know the the, the free learning and the e-learning systems that you put in place for people to to watch to help as you say potentially sell lives which is which is fantastic work I guess part of your role or anyone who's working on these roles is to understand people's you know, preferable learning styles to get the best out of people. Would, would you agree with that? And I wouldn't. <laughs> um, th- there, there's, there's research which actually um, um, debunks learning styles and would suggest it doesn't really exist. Um, but what I would say, again, is around context is being flexible enough in your approach to things where you can have a a range of solutions. Now, the reason e-learning might um, suit me is because I do like to sit down quietly on a Sunday morning and do some reading and doing some stuff on, on online with a coffee and a croissant, um, whereas at another time, it might be really useful for something else to, 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 to be in a group and, sh- and share bits and pieces like that. So, I I think it doesn't just come down to what traditionally is called learning styles. It's just at a time having a flexible approach and what's appropriate because some things are really um, simple. An example of that was I had a head of health and safety say to me, why are we as an organization doing training on fire extinguishers, types of fire extinguisher, um, fires to use them on and how you do da 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 when the organization policy is to evacuate the building and make yourself sure. safe and we thought about it and actually that's true so straight away we stopped doing that training because it was unnecessary and went against our own company policies and i know why we were doing it because when it comes to some health and safety things particularly think about fire you think Oh, need to know everything. Um, um, 
better safe than sorry. And one understands that, but not putting thousands of people through training in environments where they're not going to really good example. Well, I'm glad to. I asked the question and thanks for challenging me on it. So it's, uh, I'm learning something as I go here. And you're the professional, which is, which is great. <laughs> so we're going to jump into some quick questions, uh, some quick short answers to find out a little bit more about you, Heske. Time to find out more about you. Question number one, how would your friends describe you and how would your work colleagues describe you? I think work would say I'm um, professional and passionate. I think I'm, I'm about learning and development and, 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 the, and the benefits that you can get from that. I'm also <laughs> a bit crackers, I think people would say, and particularly my friends. I've got a, I've got a sense of humor, which is a bit crackers. But I'm also very analytical, which is quite interesting. What is your proudest achievement to date? I think it's putting everything in place um, for that new NHS organization because I just had the, 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 the desk on day one. And to have um, built everything up, recruited a, 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 a team and implemented the, the learning and development strategy and ending up with an award. Fantastic. Um, I think that's Great. I probably agree. I think it's an incredible achievement. So. How about telling us about a time when things didn't go the way you wanted? Ooh, I think that was where, um, across London, where I wanted to ensure that people only had access to leadership development if they'd been through the talent management process. Um, I was challenged with that, and it was felt that it wasn't fair to the other half of the organizations, about 30 organizations, where they hadn't been through a process and consequently wouldn't be able to access this leadership development. My argument was that I thought that that would work because it would nudge those organizations into taking part because staff would say, I want to have access, sure. so let's get involved in talent management. Now, that was seen as being a bit harsh which I couldn't really disagree with. Um, so that's why, and I think I, I spoke at the beginning, why we um, enabled people to be put through separately from their own organizations. And by accident, that's how I was able to see that 35% difference in success at the Gateway interview. So what would you view as the three key qualities that a leader needs to have in order to demonstrate great leadership? I I definitely think it's down to behaviours, um, and if I'm allowed to cheat, <laughs> sure. which I think is very important in a learning and development role, I think it's um, breaking the rules a bit. Um, if I could turn those three into five, and the reason being is about 30 years ago, I first came across Kuzis and Posner, and they did some fab research on successful leaders, and that's something else I'm very keen about, is serious research um, that underpins things rather than um, somebody saying something on LinkedIn and saying, "Hey, you know, sure. this, is, this is this is the thing," and there's nothing behind it. They had five leadership behaviours, and that were they, they were modelling the way, inspiring a shared vision, challenging the process, enabling others to act, and this is a bit uh, American, but I understand is encouraging the heart. And I think those five are critical, and no matter what models new and old you look at for leadership they tend to touch on those critical things 
tell me about a recent right, LED yeah. project or problem that you made better, faster, smarter, more efficient, or less expensive. Oh, um, I think I can do a really short answer <laughs> um, for a change. And that was a business that, that, that wanted me to look at their strategy. And one of the things they were very proud of and they'd worked with the unions was everybody was guaranteed three days training a year. And I said, no, 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 no. People need the training they need. So don't have that as the driver. Have satisfying the need. And suddenly they were able to start thinking about saving money and putting saved money into things that needed to be done. Great example. <laughs> Looking over your life and your career today, when have you been most satisfied? What's the thing you're most proud of? I, I think it's making those changes um, and seeing the benefits to organizations and people and particularly um, the stories when you're doing evaluation it's important to have hard data because people want hard data and for example the NHS is very data driven for obvious reasons so if you're talking about benefits they definitely want evidence but for me the softer stuff I spent years talking about the hard collection of soft data which is which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, and then one day I heard Brené Brown, who uh, listeners may know of. Um, she's on TED Talks and things in the States. Um, she called it um, stories are data with a soul. And that really is fantastic. And I've had a few yeah. things, feedback where with the conversation training, I had a senior manager come up to me and say, this has been really helpful. I've been able to sit down and have the conversation I've needed to for years with my two daughters. And I thought, bloody hell, if if this has made that kind of a fundamental change to somebody that they felt it's so useful, they've used it at home, this is working. But to counter that to, to the to people that are real hard nuts in the audience, um, I've I've had at the same time a manager come up to me and say, I've actually sat down and I've dealt with um, um, a £200,000 overdue account and I've had the money sent to me and I didn't have the nerve before I knew what I was doing through right. this training to do that. So I'm thrilled to bits. That's it. Excellent. Last question, a little bit more off the wall, Hesketh, but uh, I know that you'll have the personality to answer this one. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? <laughs> oh, um, I think to be able to look at food and not eat it. Oh, nice. Okay. Okay. But we'll still taste it, presumably. Still taste it. <laughs> the LND Podcast. Final questions to help listeners engage, learn, and perform. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, so we're going to dive back in. I'm keen to find out more about, and we talked about some of your achievements today, particularly with the NHS. I'd like to dive in a little bit more and I guess uh, tell the listeners more about some of the awards that you've won. I mean, you're, you're a multiple award winner yourself. We mentioned some of those in the introduction. I know that you're an advocate for organizations taking the time to enter their work for awards as well. What do you see are the main benefits of entering awards? And do you have any advice for anyone considering entering awards, perhaps for the first time? I think um, it's useful because it helps you get your thoughts in place. Um, if you look at, just pick up any 
award and look at the questions that you need to answer, that really tells you what you ought to be doing when you're pulling training and development and a strategy together in, in, in the workplace. It kind of reinforces that. But I think the starting point for an award is what story would you tell somebody down the pub about what you've been doing? Think about it as a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, there were all these particular challenges with this particular group, and we thought about this, that, and the other, and then we did that, and it didn't quite work, and we twiddled it, and now it's really fantastic, and it's delivered all these benefits. That actually is your award submission, and you need to take that information, and I dare say it will be required in any, um, um, any, any award. But the benefits from doing that, as well as the kind of the learning about or reinforcing how you think about what it is that you do, it's brilliant for the team. So whoever's responsible for pulling it together or the wider team members, if you get shortlisted, it's a huge boost because you've got some kind of external recognition. And if you win it, it's the best thing because the team loves it and it's good news for the organization. It can go out in press releases. It's news internally. And, of course, it suddenly puts you on the map depending on how on the map you are with the board, because they get um, something very positive to shout about. And suddenly L&D is, 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 is adding value that perhaps we didn't know about in the same way as we would have known from, from someone at the board talking to us about it. So I think that um, is, is brilliant. I know a lot of award categories sometimes struggle for, for nominations. So um, I think we need to remember that little snippet that you just, of advice you've just given. And perhaps if you are on the fence as a listener considering entering an award and you're not quite sure whether to go for it or not, then I think that's a really good answer to encourage them to, uh, to take the plunge and, uh, and see how they get on. Now, this year you're a judge. So on the other side of the fence for yourself, Heskith, you're a judge this year for the Training Journal Awards. Can you yeah. give us any insight into the types of projects that are featuring in the shortlist this year? Are there any new trends that you've picked up on the types of projects people are working on within, within talent management? Um, they've ranged from small projects to large projects. And by small, um, I mean, one person in a training function who, as they are going, are learning about what they are doing and making some um, fantastic progress. And it's been great because we've been able to see the journey that someone has taken um, right through to larger organizations in what we may consider to be wealthier sectors, being able to spend a lot of money doing some flash things, um, which have been very beneficial. What's always reassuring is you can see that you can get um, strong outcomes with very little resources too. Big resources don't necessarily mean um, you know, big outcomes. Sure. And I know that, um, if I understand correctly, we've got a mutual friend in Sean World who, of course, is CEO of Think Learning, who very kindly sponsored this LND podcast. But uh, I know Sean very well, have done for a number of years. What led you to asking Sean to judge on this year's um, Training Journal Awards? Well, um, he's an interesting character. He's um, definitely got um, strong, strong views and is somebody who 
would challenge me and my other um, co co judges. Um, his background isn't just think learning; it's the 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 military. He has a very interesting MBA where he's done some great research, and I thought he would bring interesting perspective to the panel. He also does some mad obstacle course racing, which I've seen some of the stuff he's, he, he's done. So clearly there must be a bonkers streak, and I think that will fit well with me. Yeah, <laughs> so you've got some bonkers judges this year. I would agree with you on on Sean for, for sure. He's, he's a bit mad for some of the things that he does, but uh, but incredibly dedicated to, to all the different things that he uh, he approaches. I'm sure he'll make a, an excellent judge at the awards as well. So since 2015, you've obviously become a freelance learning and development professional and you've continued to promote and train that the power of conversations, which is where we started this podcast with. It's a concept that on the surface appears quite simple because it underpins so much of what everyone does daily. So can you elaborate on why you've become such an advocate for it? Be because of the fact that it is so simple, but it delivers such strong benefits and actually would be that underpinning piece of work no matter what an organization is wanting to do and, 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 and change. So whatever the organization is trying to do, we have the evidence now that shows this will help whatever it is that you're doing be successful. So in some cases, what we do is um, put in the conversation training suitably named to fit in with the, with, with, with the culture, but we put in that to support other work that's going on. And at other times, it just goes in in its own right just to improve um, alignment and wider communication. Great. Did you get any, um, I guess, uh, resistance to it? Because individually, we all assume we, we know how to have a conversation. So when you're holding training on the power of conversations, do you ever get people going, well, look, you know, I understand how to have a conversation. I don't need training on this. And, and, and <laughs> when you get that kind of resistance, how do, how do you counter it? Well, um, luckily, I mean, a number of the organizations I've worked with, they've been large organizations. So if you're starting something from scratch, I would say work with people who are interested and build a, a head of steam that way. So you get people through, you get them talking about uh, the, the benefits, what it's meant for them. I'd also, where appropriate, work with the tough cookies too, who can help you develop. If they, if they, if they want to provide feedback, um, to taste something and, and, and let you know how it might be improved or what their concerns are, do that too. It's all part of that, 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 that wider engagement. Brilliant. And we're actually seeing in recruitment, um, in particular, an awful lot more uh, of a requirement for businesses looking for strong communication and stakeholder management in particular skills. It's, um, it's, a, it's very much an increasing requirement for job descriptions ranging from, you know, whether you're working at L&D administration, like through to HR directors, it seems to be an absolute essential that people are being judged on their ability to manage key stakeholder relationships. And of course, that, that's very well ingrained with the ability to how hold communication um, or conversations rather in, in a, in a strategic way sometimes, but also to be able to communicate, you know, goals and business plans and, and change management principles in a way that people can, can take it forward. So we're, we're personally seeing those changes in recruitment as well. 
Um, so I feel like that the, obviously it's not a new concept for you, but the power of conversation at the moment seems to be quite relevant in terms of what skills businesses are looking for and looking to recruit. Have you seen that as well in, in, in your work? Yes, definitely. Um, and I think part of that is down to you can see the problems that are caused and it's to do, it hits culture engagement where you have um, poor relationships um, and it can kill an organization. So I think part of this is driven by the negative side because for a while these, and I don't really like using the word soft, but these soft skills have been ignored for some of the hard business numbers um, bits and pieces. But I think from the fact that you can turn things around and make things really bad um, has focused people on not allowing that to happen. And consequently, getting these skills is more on the agenda. And we see people doing it you know, left, right and center in order to avoid sure. these happening. So, so with this in mind, then, what are the key things that L&D and HR should be prioritizing in order to develop talent at the moment in their organizations? It's recognizing where the blockages are in, in, in the business so and responding to those. So typically we have organizations that have um, possibly high staff turnover or high staff turnover in a particular area of the organization. So what's going on there? Is there stuff that you can do to, to, to solve that? It might be that you don't even have information in place or able to access the information, which enables you to understand what's going on. So perhaps think about getting information together. What's the feedback you're getting from senior managers about their challenges with staffing levels and access to people? And also from the staff themselves, are there issues with career development? Are there opportunities? Are people wanting that career development? So it's wherever there's a discontinuity and it's about solving that. So I wouldn't want to have a um, a blanket approach to talent management, but it's about solving the problems. When people talk about high staff turnover, they automatically assume it's negative, but it's negative if you're losing the wrong people, the people that you need to keep. But if you're losing people who you can afford to lose, perhaps that's beneficial. So just looking at a figure alone, across the whole organization as an average, it doesn't really tell you much. You need that's to really, That's a really good point. I really like that point. And it's actually something that um, I haven't probably considered um, particularly. You just look at, you know, when we look at businesses, we see businesses in recruitment that have high or low attrition and you make blanket assumptions, but you're absolutely right. Sometimes that might even be a, a company objective to lose the people that they want to lose and to keep, as long as not losing the, the key people and um, the key skills. Yeah, and, and that's part of the problem with big data is you need to use a brain to to do something with the information and make some decisions or get further information because, you know, the raw data alone doesn't tell you what, what what's happening. Um, last question before we enter the L&D vault, before we finish the podcast. Um, it makes sense for me to ask you then why L&D professionals listening to this podcast should be encouraged to embrace communications training. What's what's the, the, the key principle you would give to those perhaps either developing their own communications training internally as an L&D professional or whether they're buying it in, in elsewhere? What's the, the, the key primary reasons that you would give for why L&D professionals should be encouraged to embrace communication training? 
it's the oil that eases ev everything going on internally and externally with your um, customers and will be the foundation on which everything else you're wanting to do will sit. Great. Fantastic. I think that leads us nicely into the L&D vault. Opening the L&D vault. So question number one for you, Heskip. Here we go. <laughs> what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone working in learning and development right now? Read the business plan. Read the business plan. Fantastic. If there is one, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. I've, I've come across a lack of a business plan too. With the benefits of hindsight, what would be the one career decision you would change? I think it would be to have pursued a foreign language to greater um, levels so that international working would be more straightforward. Oh, nice. Interesting. I like that. When you look at the L&D profession from an eagle's viewpoint, what do you think is holding the industry back? I think that... L&D can be seen very often, partly to do with the structure, but partly to do with professional bodies as being an offshoot of HR. I've seen a variety of roles, for example, advertised where even though they might be very specialized L&D roles or organizational development, people have wanted HR generalists. And I think there is a fundamental difference between HR generalism and organizational development. And I know that um, the CIPD is now doing a lot to reinforce L&D and Andy Lancaster in particular in, in its own right. But I hear a lot of people in L&D that, that I meet being rather unsettled about feeling perhaps like a second class citizen. And in fact, some are aligning themselves more with the, the states and the, their association of talent development. So I think there is definitely a need to think about how we promote L&D as a profession. Great. Fantastic. If we're sitting here a year from now, celebrating what a great year it's been for you, what will you have hoped to have achieved? I think more good stories, as well as the hard data. I like really good stories about the benefits, and particularly you know, if you're saving lives as well. So it's just more good stuff, I think. Right, more, uh, more. Was it uh, you mentioned for hard data with a soul? It was uh, stories are just data with a soul. <laughs> more examples yes. of those. Excellent. Yep. Finally, last question for the podcast. Finally, what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone embarking on a career in learning and development right now? To do it because it's fantastic, either working internally with one organisation or as your career develops uh, 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 across others. It's the solving the problems. But I would say think, research, analysis, developing options, doing it, and evaluating it, being methodical. That doesn't mean it has to be long-winded, but you need to go through all those stages, be it long or short, and then you'll be doing stuff that satisfies and delivers benefit. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, that brings us to a close for the podcast. Hesky, thank you ever so much for your time to join us today on the L&D podcast sponsored by Think Learning. For those of you listening who would like to find out more about Heskett's work, you can uh, view his profile on LinkedIn or you can visit proinsight.co.uk where it's a business that specializes in helping individuals that are seeking strategic and operational improvements. There's a number of services that the business provides along the lines of the conversational piece that we've been discussing, collaboration, talent management, and more. So please do check out the website, which is proinsight.co.uk. 
Uh, apart from that, just leaves me to say a huge thank you, Hesketh, for joining me today. I hope you've, uh, as listeners, have all found this content incredibly useful. Um, but that brings us podcast to a close, and I look forward to speaking to you all again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Nick. You've been listening to the L&D Podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. This podcast has been sponsored by Think Learning. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please review it, share it and subscribe so you never miss a future episode.